This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. A pastor tells a story of uh, a time when he was a schoolboy. He remembers having classmates who would show up in school after 10 plus days of absence. And uh, when they returned to school, they were carrying a jar of murky water with something floating in it. He wasn't sure if this was some sort of barbaric custom or, or what. Uh, but what these boys were, were bringing to school with them was their appendix. They had been absent from school to get their appendix removed. And the surgeon had given it to them in a jar. So, some days there would be an appendix on the desk. Other days there would be tonsils on the desk. And, of course, being a young boy, not knowing much about anatomy, this future pastor asked his friends, well, where did the surgeon take it from? And they would scurry behind the chalkboard and the little boy would lift his shirt up to show him the scar. Curiosity at record levels now, he said, well, how can you live without it? And the boy said, it's okay. You can live without it. It's just an appendix. I'm fine, and I have mine in a jar. There are people whose perspective on the resurrection is exactly the same. You can live the Christian life without it. It's an appendix. You simply put it in a jar and carry it around with you. You can show it to folks if you want to. It's really an irrelevancy. It doesn't matter. My friends, it matters. This Resurrection Sunday, we're going to consider four reasons the resurrection matters. Four reasons the resurrection is not an appendix. Number one, the resurrection confirms Jesus' claims. Who did Jesus himself say he was? In Mark's gospel, there's a paralytic that's laid at the feet of Jesus, and the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, son, your sins are forgiven. These five words make a thunderous claim. He's claiming to have authority to forgive sins. And to prove it, he heals them. In John 10, Jesus speaks to the Jewish people who are gathered around him and says, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me, I give them eternal life. Jesus is claiming to be able to give people eternal life. In John 2, Jesus makes this audacious statement. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is claiming his own power and authority over death itself. 
Jesus' claims are not meek and mild. They are outrageous. He claims to have authority to forgive sins. He claims to have the power to give people eternal life. He claims to have authority over death itself. Who can make these outrageous claims? Now, modern people will look at these claims and they may say, well, look, anybody can claim to be or do anything. Claiming it doesn't make it so. That's true. Claiming it doesn't make it so. Even one of Jesus' own disciples who had followed him around for three years, watching him perform miracles, even that disciple did not believe Jesus had come back to life. Thomas is a very modern character. In fact, he's, in fact, he's probably more skeptical than most modern people because at least he got to witness some extraordinary things firsthand. Yet he still didn't believe Jesus had been raised from the dead. So in John 20, Jesus appears before Thomas and he says, Thomas, put your finger in my hands. Put your finger in my sides. And then he says to him, stop doubting and believe. So Thomas did so. He did as Jesus asked. And he said, my Lord and my God, one sight of the resurrected Jesus, one touch of the resurrected Jesus brought down all the pent-up reservations Thomas had. It's as if everything he saw and heard and experienced for those three years with Jesus made sense now that he had seen and touched the resurrected Christ. This confession of my Lord and my God is Thomas's pithy, a profound way of saying, I believe you are everything you said you, you, said you were. And he backed up his most outrageous claim, the claim to have power over death itself. On Resurrection Sunday, he backed it up. The resurrection matters because Jesus made some outrageous claims that, if true, are the best news you can hear. You might say, well, I don't have a problem with those whatsoever. I believe Jesus was who he said he was. Great. But have you stopped to think what effect those claims should have in your life? If Jesus' claims are really true, what effect should that have in your life? C.S. Lewis thought about that one day. He wrote this, we may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. The magnitude of Jesus' claims demand a radical response from you. The outrageous claims of Christ demand an outrageous response from us. When you look at the Gospels, Nobody ever had a moderate response to Jesus. Nobody ever had a moderate response to him. Jesus either made people so angry they wanted to kill him, so scared they wanted to run from him, or so smitten with him they wanted to devote their lives to him. What effect have the claims of Christ had on you? What effect has the resurrection had on you? Change the question. What would Jesus say your reaction has been to him? If Jesus was to follow you around for a week, see everything you do, listen to everything that you say, 
would he say your reaction to him has been radical? See, for some of you in this room, your reaction to Jesus has been mild. It's been moderate. And Jesus is calling to you and demanding from you a radical response. Resurrection confirms Jesus' radical claims. And those radical claims demand a radical response from us. Second reason the resurrection matters, it illuminates the most important aspect of a church. What's the most important thing about a church? It's the most important thing about a church. You might say, well, the most important thing about a church is that it's a place where you can go to make friends. Or it's a place that teaches moral virtue. Or it's a place that's uh, involved in social causes. Or you'd say the most important thing about a church is that it's hip. It's in vogue. No. None of those things are the most important aspect to a church. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. When Paul refers to preaching here, he's not talking about the act of preaching. He's talking about the content of preaching. And the content of preaching in the New Testament is everywhere the same. Jesus is born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died for sinful humanity. He was raised from the dead and is one day going to return to establish his perfect, eternal, kingly rule. This is the preaching Paul says is useless if the resurrection didn't happen. And by implication, it illuminates the most important aspect of any church. Let me tell you something, though. There are a lot of churches who preach and minister as if the resurrection did not happen. There are churches all over this nation that remove the difficulties of Christianity. All that silly stuff that might trip up sophisticated intellectual people. There are churches all over this nation that remove the resurrection from their preaching and their ministry. So what do you have left? What would the Apostle Paul say is left when the resurrection is removed? It's a tough pill to swallow, but here's what you have left. You've got useless preaching, useless ministry, and useless churches. Just because there's a church on every corner doesn't mean the content of the gospel is preached on every corner. So if the content of the gospel is not preached, what is and what effect is it having? When a church omits belief in the resurrection, that's like a group of kids showing up at a soccer field to play soccer without a ball and saying to themselves, that's okay, it doesn't matter, let's play soccer anyway. There are churches and ministers all over the fruited plain who believe that even if you remove the resurrection, there's still something worth talking about. I got news for you. If there's no resurrection, there's nothing worth talking about. Michael Green said this. He said, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would have never begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a wet firework with his execution. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once disprove it, and you've disposed of Christianity. See, the resurrection, folks, is the linchpin in Christianity. Remove it, ignore it, put it in storage, and the rest of Christianity disintegrates into oblivion. The most important aspect of a church, any church, is whether or not the crucifixion and resurrection and the reasons for them and the implications of them are the most important aspect of that church. 
That's the most important thing. Third, the resurrection matters because it means our deepest problem has been addressed. It means our deepest problem has been addressed. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, go back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? As a consequence of their sin, what happened? They got kicked out of the garden. They got removed from the presence of God. The Garden of Eden was the dwelling place of God, and they got kicked out of it. The tree of life, which was in the garden, ensured Adam and Eve's eternal life would, would, would continue, and they'd been cut off from it. So if you read the Bible as a single story, the million-dollar question in the plot line, the tension in the plot line is this. How do human beings get back into the presence of God? How do human beings get back into the dwelling place of God? How do human beings once again get to the place where eternal life is the way things are? See, the problem is we've been separated from God. And what caused that problem is our sin. Our separation from God caused by sin is your greatest and deepest problem. I know there are lots of problems in the world today. Poverty, racism, war, oppression, tyranny. All of those are grievous sins. But there is one sin that feeds them all. There is one sin that is the lifeblood of all those other sins. There is one sin that's underneath all other sins. And that one sin is our fundamental hatred of or indifference to God. Our hatred of or indifference to God is our greatest and deepest problem. And if the resurrection never happened or we act as if the resurrection never happened, then our greatest and deepest problem remains our greatest and deepest problem. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If there's no resurrection, we can try to band-aid the grievous evils in our world, but in the end, we still have hell to pay. The greatest and deepest problem that we have is our hatred of or our indifference to God. This is the sin that feeds all other sins. It's the sin that lies underneath all other sins. It's the sin beneath all other sins. So how does that get fixed? If solving our sin problem is inextricably linked with the resurrection, then that means something profound about forgiveness. It answers the question, who does sin offend the most and who can forgive it? At the end of World War II, a Jew by the name of Simon Weisenthal was still clinging to life in Auschwitz. Even after all of his extended family had been wiped out, and at this juncture, uh, he was only weeks away from the end of the terror and the horror of Auschwitz. The Russians were moving in from the east. Weisenthal was in a work party when suddenly he was pulled out by German guards and shoved into a room. There in the room was a young German Nazi soldier, maybe 19 years old. He had suffered grievous wounds and was clearly going to die. But before he died... He wanted to talk to a Jew. And in God's peculiar providence, the Jew who was pulled out of line and shoved into that room was Simon Weisenthal. The young Nazi explained why he wanted to see him. Gasping for breath not long to live, he acknowledged that the Nazis had treated the Jews horribly and that he himself had been engaged in some horrific things. 
Now he wanted the Jews' forgiveness. Weisenthal was quietly reasoning it out in his mind. He later wrote up his reflections in a little book called The Sunflower. Most of the pages of that short book describe what flashed through his mind as he was talking with this Nazi soldier. The reasoning is this. Who can forgive but those who've been offended? The most offended parties of the Holocaust are dead. In Auschwitz, they had already been burned in the ovens. How can a survivor like Weisenthal pronounce forgiveness on behalf of those who died? How can he speak for the dead? If most of the brutalized victims of the Nazis are dead, then there is no one qualified to pronounce forgiveness. So there is no forgiveness for the Nazis. Without saying a single word, Weisenthal listened to the young, mortally wounded man and then turned and walked out of the room. After the war was over and he had written his little book, Weisenthal sent it out to ethicists all over the world, Christian, Jewish, various backgrounds, and he asked them to answer this one question. Did I do what was right? He kicked off a furious exchange among ethicists all over the world. Weisenthal almost got it right. He was surely right to insist that only the offended party can forgive. That's right. But according to the Bible, the most offended party is always God. That's what's so scandalous about Jesus pronouncing forgiveness of sin throughout his ministry. Jesus is pronouncing forgiveness which means he's the most offended party. He is the only one qualified to pronounce forgiveness. Your greatest need, friend, your greatest need in this life is to hear Jesus say to you, your sins are forgiven. If there is no resurrection, there is no forgiveness. But the resurrection means Jesus pronounces forgiveness to those who come to him in repentance and faith. The resurrection means the sin that separates us from the life-giving presence of God has been forgiven. The resurrection means the forgiven can enter Eden once again. The resurrection means your deepest problem has been addressed. Fourth, and finally, the resurrection foreshadows restoration is on the other side of brokenness. Jesus had a bodily resurrection. After the resurrection, he walked and talked with his disciples. They could hear him. They could see him. They could touch him. Jesus ate meals with his disciples. He had a bodily, physical presence after his resurrection, similar to his presence with people before his death. And yet there was something glorious about this bodily, physical existence. He can appear and disappear at will. He can hide his identity so the disciples don't know who they're talking to. Locked doors mean nothing to him. The resurrection foreshadows restoration is on the other side of brokenness. After the cross, there's a resurrection. I often think about Johnny Erickson Tata around Easter time. She was in a horrific accident when she was 17 years old, leaving her a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. And while the accident was still fresh and she was coming to terms with, with it all, she would go to church in her wheelchair. 
problem with being in a wheelchair, she found, is that at a certain point in our church's worship service, the minister would ask everyone to kneel, which drove home to her the fact that she was stuck in a wheelchair. She was once at a convention in which the speaker urged people to get down on their knees and pray, and everyone did except Johnny. She recalls, with everyone kneeling, I certainly stood out. I couldn't stop the tears. But it wasn't because of self-pity. She was crying because the sight of hundreds of people on their knees before God was so beautiful to her. In her words, a picture of heaven. And then she continued weeping at another thought. She said this, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. And I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. You see how the resurrection provides Johnny with hope? You see how it provides her with energy? vibrancy, even while she's confined to her wheelchair. Resurrection foreshadows, restoration is on the other side of brokenness. But listen, this restoration isn't just futuristic. When Jesus commenced his public ministry, he announced, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. And in breaking, of the kingdom of God has begun in the here and now, which means we are given a taste of restoration after brokenness in the here and now. Maybe when you look back at your life, you can see traces of it, places where you were once broken, but you saw how God worked to bring about some kind of imperfect beautiful restoration. There are countless examples of broken marriages, once broken marriages, now restored. Countless examples of once broken lives, now pieced together imperfectly, but still beautiful. The resurrection foreshadows restoration after brokenness. And listen, there isn't another religion or philosophy out there that can offer you that. None, but in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you a story of someone in our church who discovered all of this firsthand. He discovered the power built into the gospel that restores what was once broken. Let's take a look. I was married in early 2000. Uh, we had met in church, uh, and I noticed there's a lot of bitterness there, but I didn't, uh, uh, you know, in the honeymoon stage, no, no, nobody was gonna tell me anything. I didn't pay any attention to it, and um, it was a very uh, cold marriage. Uh, there was no relationship. Uh, there was no 
intimacy, there wasn't even affection, not even hugs. And so our marriage gradually uh, grew apart. Uh, um, I hated coming home. I became a workaholic, I would say. I started a business with a couple of partners. Um, almost all the clients, except for one, I brought in. I wasn't managing the books side of the business as much, but come to find out, my ex-wife had discovered that my business partners were uh, cutting checks themselves. And uh, when I asked them about what was going on there, um, I got an answer that didn't make sense at all to me. And uh, that triggered a series of transactions that they uh, conducted where they I voted two against one. There's three of us in the business. I voted two against one to sell the business to themselves. And I had no choice but to sue my business partners when they sold our business for less than one year's net income. Um, and that triggered counter lawsuits. Uh, and my ex-wife uh, joined them uh, in the uh, lawsuits. Um, and so I was fighting them and her in a legal battle. At the same time, uh, we had a, a, a ugly divorce going on. I grew angry, angry and bitter myself, and especially with my business partners. I, I wanted justice, and I wanted it on my timing, on my terms, and I was elbowing God out of the way and, and not letting him be the judge and not letting him control. I ended up losing my business entirely, and um, the judge gave my wife over 90% of our marital estate. Uh, but I started to read my Bible, and God really spoke to me during that time, and, and, and it was the only thing that offered peace in my life. But I also learned during that time, the Bible is a story of mankind's depravity and God's reconciliation. God has restored me and, and providing me peace to get through this uh, that I had not ever experienced before. During the lawsuit, uh, uh, I decided to move on, and, and I met somebody, and Maria had uh, similar hardships she'd gone through, and so we had something in common. I called her at a weak moment, and, and she married me, and when we, a little after a year into our marriage, we were having our first child, the lawyers were subpoenaing my wife, and, and uh, I decided to, to walk away from the lawsuits. I, uh, I started over with nothing, and we, we had nothing. We, I had, all I had was debt. I, during that time, though, I, I grew closer to God, so in that regard, I had everything. And losing every material thing uh, is, is not that big of a deal when you have what really matters for eternity in place. And I, I started having a walk with Christ and my wife and I were working out our faith daily um, uh, and it's that reconciliation and that comes with it, but most importantly, the peace that comes with it. Uh, um, uh, and we've learned to forgive. Uh, we're, we're very blessed to have stepped into a church family that helps us uh, grow in a real relationship with Christ as opposed to just doing the religious gymnastics. There's a song that I like that's a simple old, old song, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Upon Jesus, look full in his <clears throat> it's the words that mean so much to me in the song is turn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, 
and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I'm gonna to add to that the peace that you feel, um, the things that really matter in life um, become, uh, you, you, you gain clarity with what really matters and that's your relationship with Christ. And not surfacing Christianity, but a daily walk with Christ is such a beautiful, peaceful thing. And I want everybody to experience that. bow your heads, close your eyes. One of the most remarkable things about Dan's story is his ability to say and believe that even when he had nothing, because he had Christ, he had everything. Are you able to say and believe that this morning? If not, then maybe something's missing. Maybe the thing that's missing is the thing that was missing in Dan's life, faith in the resurrected Christ, faith that the resurrection happened and is a living reality. I would invite you to talk to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm distant from you. You're more of an idea to me than a living reality to me. Break into my world and save me. Show me who you are and cause me to live as if you really are who you claim to be. And help me to have a radical response to you. If you sense that happening in your life or you want to talk more about it, I would love to do that with you sometime. All of us could use the hope that that reminder creates. Maybe you're living through a season of brokenness. Physical, mental, financial, spiritual, relational state of brokenness. Because there's a resurrection, restoration resides on the other side of it. Just like it does for Johnny Erickson Tata, just like it does for Dan Sylvie, ask Jesus in these moments, ask Jesus to let this reality create in you hope and vibrancy even while you sit in your brokenness. Jesus, we would be nowhere with no hope of anything better if you were not raised from the dead. You'd be a phony. It'd be pointless to be here this morning. We'd still be stuck in our sin, separated from your life-giving presence with no hope for ever getting back in. And we'd be wallowing in our brokenness with no reason to expect it to change. Because you were raised, because you validated your self-claims, all of this changes. You are king. You have forgiven those who've come to you asking for it. We get a taste of restoration after brokenness in our daily lives. We're given hope for something extraordinary after we breathe our last. And this gathering means something. So with one voice, we, your people, declare your victory for your glory and fame alone. Amen.